35. I'm going to read a couple different selections, a couple verses from these two chapters. We're going to cover two chapters this morning in this sermon. But for the sake of time, I won't read all, uh, two cha- all of the, both chapters. I'm going to read a uh, selection from each. When you're there, Jeremiah 34, say amen, so I know you're there. When you're not there, say hold up. And I'll say, hurry up. Use the table of contents. Find the page number. It's all right. No shame. Jeremiah. Hey, if you're new with us, it's probably good to know that we've been working through Jeremiah. It's a very big book. Uh, According to the word count outside of the Psalms, it's the longest book in the Bible. So we're just kind of walking through it. We're we're getting uh, about two-thirds of the way through. And here we are this morning. Uh, Jeremiah 34 and 35. All right, let me read a couple selections from these two chapters to give you an idea of what's going on before we uh, hear God's Word preached. Starting with Jeremiah chapter 34, verse 8. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to make a proclamation of liberty to them that everyone should set free his Hebrew slaves, male and female, so that no one should enslave a Jew, his brother. And they obeyed all the officials and all the people who had entered into the covenant that everyone would set free his slave, male or female, so that they would not be enslaved again. They obeyed and set them free. But afterward, they turned around and took back the male and female slaves that they had set free and brought them into subjection as slaves. Skipping down to verse 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty, every one to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty to the sword, to pestilence, to famine, declares the Lord. I will make you a horde to all the kingdoms of the earth. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts, the officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf, and I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the, of the earth." Skipping to chapter 35, verse 1. Then the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Go to the house of the Rechabites and speak with them and bring them to the house of the Lord into one of the chambers, then offer them wine to drink. So I took Jezaniah, the son of Jeremiah, different Jeremiah, the son of Habazina, and his brothers, and all his sons, and the whole house of the Rechabites. I brought them to the house of the Lord into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Ildaliah, the man of God, which was near the chamber of the officials, above the chamber of Messiah, the son of Shalom, keeper of the threshold. Then I set before the Rechabites pitchers full of wine and cups, and I said to them, drink wine, 
But they answered, We will drink no wine, for Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, You shall not drink wine, neither neither you nor your sons forever. You shall not build a house, you shall not sow seed, you shall not plant or have a vineyard, but you shall live in tents all your days, that you may live many days in the land where you sojourn. We have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he commanded us, to drink no wine all our days, ourselves, our wives, our sons, or our daughters, and not to build houses to dwell in. We have no vineyard or field or seed, but we have lived in tents and have obeyed and done all that Jonadab, our father, has commanded us. Verse 14. The command that Jonadab, the son of Rechab, gave to his sons to drink no wine has been kept, and they drink none to this day, for they have obeyed their father's command. I, speaking of God, have spoken to you persistently, but you have not listened to me. Let's pray as we get into this text. Father, we ask that you would help us this morning. As we studied Jeremiah 34 and 35, we ask that you would give us ears to hear your word, that we would experience Jesus through this proclamation of truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Imagine with me for a moment a dark secret. Nobody knows it. But a man is contemplating an adulterous relationship with a woman that he works with. He sends her an obscene text message. The only problem is that text message goes to his pastor. In a moment of sheer panic, he falls on his face before God and says, God, forgive me. Forgive me, it's done, it's over. I will never again flirt with this affair. I will never again look at a woman other than my wife. God, I repent, have my heart, it's all you, God. Then he looks at his phone and it's like a thousand pound burden is lifted off of his back as he reads the words, text message failed. The next day, he sends an obscene text message to the woman from his office. Evidently, his conviction was not quite as deep as we thought. Evidently, his repentance wasn't rooted in a whole lot more than just simply a momentary feeling of shame. I want to speak to you this morning on the topic, convenient obedience. Convenient obedience. And what I mean by that is not what we might typically mean by convenient obedience, in that sometimes it's hard to obey when things are bad. And we only obey when things are good, when it's convenient to do so. That's typically what I might mean when I say the words convenient obedience. That's not really what I mean this morning. It's true that sometimes it's hard to obey when things are bad. But it's also true That sometimes it's difficult to obey when things are good. 
Sometimes we are tempted most to disobey God when things are not bad in our life, but when things actually seem fine, when we are comfortable. And we only then really obey God when we feel like things are bad and we need God to turn our situation around for us, a.k.a. it's convenient to obey Him during those times. Now, there's something going on in this text that I think is really revealed in verse 21. You're not going to get the full weight of it yet until I explain it. But in verse 21, the last few lines right there, he says, Babylon has withdrawn from you. Babylon had in this moment withdrawn from Israel. Now let me explain the story to you so you understand why I think that's important to the text. So the year is 587. Babylon is attacking Jerusalem. This had been prophesied about. That's essentially what the whole book of Jeremiah is about, isn't it? That's what we've been talking about for the last 20 weeks or so. Babylon is attacking Jerusalem. Now, that, mess, or that, that, that uh, uh, message is given to the king, Zedekiah, in verses 1 through 7, through Jeremiah. It's, it's a repeated message that we see throughout the book. Babylon is going to attack. You're going to be destroyed, and the king is going to be turned over to Babylon. Now, something, an event, precipitated Jeremiah giving that message to King Zedekiah in verse, verses 1 through 7. The event we now find out about in the latter verses. What's going on is this. As Babylon is coming into Jerusalem, King Zedekiah essentially makes a last-minute effort to reverse the judgment of God. And what he does is he brings all of the wealthy people together who have slaves. Now, slaves, Hebrew slaves, would have been people who largely had fallen into a debt that they could not pay off, and then they come into a, uh, a typically a temporal slavery to another individual, to the, the uh, person they owe money to, until that debt is paid off. He brings all these wealthy people together who have slaves. And he, he remembers uh, something from the law that they have been disobedient to. It's what we could call a year of Sabbath. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 12 through 18, God had required that his people, one out of every seven years, give a year of Sabbath. And during this year, all slaves were to be released. Now, this is something that they had been disobedient toward. They had not obeyed this law of God. It wasn't convenient for them to do so. Until now. So, Zedekiah brings them all together, and he makes a covenant with them. Now, before we talk about the content of the covenant, let me tell you what the process was in making a covenant. They would come up with their clear terms and stipulations, this thing we are going to do before God, etc. And then they would take a calf and they would cut the calf down the middle. And they would take each side of the calf, 
place them parallel each other and allow all the blood to kind of flow out of the animal into this blood path. Then those who are making this covenant before God would walk through the blood path and get the blood all over their shoes and their feet and their, the bottom of their clothing, whatever. And that was how they would make this covenant. And what they're saying is this. As they walk through the blood path, what they're saying is, is if we break this covenant, let us become like this. Let this blood be on us. So the covenant that they they made before God was a renewal of following the law and that they would obey God and that they would, this Sabbath year, release the slaves. It's amazing what kind of obedience you'll see in somebody when things are bad, when they're freaking out about some situation in life. They actually obey God. In verse 15, God says, you recently repented and did what was right in my eyes. Like God was actually pleased by this. They haven't been doing this. They've never done this. They finally observe the one in seven year of Sabbath and they release the slaves. And God's like, this is good. You're obeying. Listen, family, it is amazing what kind of obedience is produced in an individual when they send the text message to the wrong person and they're freaking out and they're like, oh God, I, 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 I give you my phone, I give you my heart, I give you everything. You know what I'm saying? It's amazing when, when things seem to be going really bad in life, the kind of repentance that that can draw out in an individual. When you get caught in a lie and your whole livelihood is now at stake. It's amazing how many people start coming to church. When you're looking at the wrong website and a little screen pops up that says your entire internet history is being sent to your email list. Oh God, I, I, I'll never look again. I repent. Forgive me. I'm going to put covenant eyes on my computer. It's amazing the kind of initial repentance and turning that a moment of freaking out can bring out in somebody. Are you guys tracking with me? All right, good. Because you're looking at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. That either tells me one of two things. It tells me you don't know what I'm talking about, or it tells me, like, hmm, been there. (laughs) So hopefully it's at least the latter. Now, how long does this obedience last? This is the question that I'm looking at this morning. Well, let's look at it. Verse 11. But afterward, they turned around and took back the male and female slaves. Or in verse 16, God says, hey, you did what was right. You repented. But then he says in verse 16, but then you turned around and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female slaves whom you had set free. Verse 17, therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and to his neighbor. 
Which, by the way, look at the change of language that God uses. No longer is he calling them male and female slaves. He's calling them brother and neighbor. He's telling them something. Listen, caring for the poor and this issue of slavery is not the main point in this text, but it is a point in this text. This issue of slavery is actually just an example of the deeper problem of sin in their life, but it is an example that we should pay attention to and an example that should humble us. So just like a little side note here, and then we're going to get back to the main point. God cares about the poor. Christopher Wright said that to, to, to break faith with the poorest in society is to break the whole covenant with Yahweh. To ignore the downtrodden, to oppress another individual, is to ignore the whole covenant with Yahweh. Now going on as a result of this, in verse 18, he says, And the man who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. Verse 20, I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. Verse 21, And Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials, I will give to, uh, into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives, into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon, look at the next words, which has withdrawn from you. You see what's going on here? Let me kind of paint the picture for you and bring it all together. Babylon is attacking Jerusalem. In a last-minute effort, King Zedekiah brings the nobles together, the wealthy together, those who have slaves, and he says, all right, let's obey God. We're freaking out. We sent the text message to the wrong person, right? It's that sort of freak out. Like, things are bad. Babylon is coming. Let's obey God. So what do they do? They make this covenant. They obey God. And then what happens? Babylon retreats. Why do they take their slaves back? It's because Babylon retreated. It's because the initial problem that was right in front of their face went away. See, what happens when, you know, that screen pops up and, and scares you about your internet history or whatever? What happens when you realize that that was just a scam? What are you looking at the next day? Your repentance wasn't quite as deep as we thought, was it? What happens when the lie that you thought was going to ruin you was actually not heard? Well, your repentance wasn't quite as deep as we thought. Because you're back to your same old ways. What happens when the text message fails and it, it didn't go through? And all of a sudden you realize, oh, I can still live in the dark. I can still hide this. See, my concern is so often that our attempt to 
repent, our attempt to come to church, our attempt to confess our sins to each other, our, our, our falling on our knees before God is so often based on our human shame and nothing more. And then when that shame is gone, our repentance is gone. Why do we obey God only when it's convenient for us? Why do we obey Him only when it's convenient? Why do we as humans see ourselves in this story and we realize how quickly we go back to the same sin patterns as soon as shame, as soon as the problems are gone, as soon as the army retreats? Well, a couple of reasons that I see in this text. First, we have shallow passions. Our passions, our desires are too limited. And, and along with this, we don't see the law of God as essentially good. A friend of mine a couple years ago fell into a drug addiction. And on January 3rd, I had emailed him and, and we were talking about him coming into my, my home. It's cold outside and he said he was living down on Utah Street outside and he said he is fine. And he actually said he was happy. Listen, my friend with this drug addiction who's homeless and believes he's happy, it's not that his desires are too strong, it's that his desires are too shallow. Meaning, I want for my friend to know the joy of having a home with heat in it and eating a little food and playing with my kids and putting them to bed and watching a little TV and drinking some, some, some tea and going to bed, right? And then getting up in the morning and working hard and producing something and getting a paycheck and coming home and feeling like I did something. You know what I'm saying? Like, I want my friend to know that joy, but he's content with his crack over here, with his drugs. He's content with the high that he... See, do you see what the problem is? It's not that he has too great of a desire, but his desires are too limited. It's, he, he's content with too little in life. I can't be content with that. I want this over here, right? This is the way we are with God's law. When we say, no, God's law is not for me, I want to live my own way, live according to my own law, create my own happiness, we're content with too little. We don't essentially see God's law and God's way as good and right and better, right? Are you tracking with me? How does this relate to the text? Well, Israel evidently does not see the law of God as good. Because as soon as they get a little window, they go ahead back to their disobedient ways. I mean, think about it. For them, slaves, releasing their slaves, that would have been costly for them. That obedience would have been costly for them. 
And they don't see it as good. They don't see that human flourishing for all is essentially good and better for them than to dehumanize and to, to enslave. They don't trust that God's law is better than following their own path. Why did Adam and Eve disobey God? Was it not because they didn't trust that God's way was better? Satan deceived them into believing that God doesn't want their good, he wants their harm. God wants you to obey his law because he's trying to control you and get you to do things that are boring. They didn't see God's law as good and beautiful and right. And so they went their own way. Kids, this would be like your parents wanting to take you to Disney World. And you've never been to Disney World, so you don't know how great that is. You're fine with sitting in front of Netflix, watching a Disney movie. And they say, come on, let's go to Disney World. Maybe you're even in Orlando. You're sitting in the hotel. I don't want to go into Disney World. I want to watch this movie on Netflix. What's the problem? Well, the problem is, is that we're content with too little. That if we, if we listen to our father and our mother, we will have something much better than this. But we don't trust them. Are you guys tracking with me? Well, like, I'm fine with this, and because I'm so focused on this, I'm really missing the beautiful reality of what God has in store for me. Listen, friends, God will never require anything of you that is for your harm. Every aspect of God's law is for your good. He therefore doesn't want our begrudged duty. He wants our delightful obedience to Him. We then are people who live by faith because we can't always see that it's better, right? Sometimes following God makes it more challenging in the immediate, but it's still better for you. By faith, we walk. By faith, we believe that it's better to stay with our spouse than to divorce. By faith, we believe it's better to refrain from premarital sex instead of delighting in sex. By faith, we believe that it's better to work a job and produce something as opposed to giving into our lazy spirit. By faith, we believe it's better to tell the truth instead of telling a lie. It might now not be easy in the moment, but what we believe is that what God requires of us and what He has in store for us is ultimately better. Are you with me? We have shallow passions. Number two, we have shallow conviction. Our repentance lacks deep conviction. So we don't see the beautiful picture of following God. We don't see why we ought to be obedient to God. And then when we are obedient to God, it is often based on this shallow kind of conviction. Just sort of a nod toward obedience. I was sharing the, this passage with a, another friend of mine this week, and he said, uh, he said, that reminds me of how the city of Troy was sacked. Evidently, the city of Troy was sacked as a Trojan horse was offered as a tribute 
to the city. And the ships all left. They retreated. And what happened was those in Troy relaxed. They got comfortable. They celebrated. You see, a lot of times, friends, we are more vulnerable when we're comfortable. It's when we believe that the enemy is retreating. It's when we believe that the battle is retreating. When we believe that our shame is retreating. When we believe that the problem we thought we had is actually no longer there. And we get comfortable again. Things get good again. That's when we are vulnerable. That's where the enemy loves to have us and attack us. Is your conviction of sin only based on the reality that you got caught? Is your conviction of sin only based on your shame? And as your problem retreats, your convictions retreat as well. It's like a child who hurts their brother or sister and says, Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then they realize that their brother or sister is not actually hurt. What do they do? They go right back to the same behavior. Like, do we, do we apologize? Do we say, God, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry? Only because we think there are negative ramifications at hand. And as soon as those negative ramifications are no longer at hand, we get right back to our same old behavior. It's based on shame. Listen, friends, true conviction is based on the deep belief that there is something wrong with me. And the deep belief that there is something very right with God. And I'm moving toward Him no matter who knows. No matter what. I've got this conviction that God is better. In Jeremiah chapter 31, we've already seen that God has given us a new heart. Meaning, we did not have the ability to obey, now we do. We've been given a new heart, new desires, so that we might see that God is beautiful, that His law is right, and that we might obey. This is based on true conviction that only the Holy Spirit of God can bring into your life. And family, I would say this, if you are not experiencing that true conviction, pray for it. Pray for it. Ask God, please, Holy Spirit, convict me of the sins where I am not convicted. Like I'm disobeying you here and I don't really feel it. God, would you convict me of that? Well, thirdly, we've got shallow passions, shallow conviction. We also deal with a shallow identity. A shallow identity. In the movie, The Godfather, Vito Corleone, as a young man, he's trying to stay out of the family business. But he kind of gets sucked into it after his dad is shot up and there's some problems in the family. He gets sucked into it. Why does he get sucked into it? Because he's part of the family. This is who we are. This is my identity. This is, I'm a Corleone. This is what families do. This is what I am. You see, so often we act based out of our identity. 
And if we are not obeying God, we have to ask ourselves, who am I? How do I identify myself? What is my identity? P.T. Forsyth was right who said that the first duty of every soul is to not find its freedom, but to find its master. What he means by that is that your soul is not really free. You're mastered by something. You obey something. You might be mastered by your own desires of the flesh. You might be mastered by what Hollywood tells you. You might be mastered by someone else's desires. The duty of the soul is to figure out who is going to be your master. And, And for a Christian, what we're saying is that God is our right, good, beautiful master. That there is no other master that is going to lead me in a way into a place that God will lead me. And there lies my identity. Now this issue of identity is seen in chapter 35. After this situation goes down with the slaves, and they repent, and then they take their slaves back, in chapter 35, Jeremiah gives them an object lesson. There are this, there's this group known as the Rechabites. They're sort of like a hybrid between Amish, uh, mountain people, off the grid, and uh, Occupy movement, people living on the streets of Manhattan. Can we put it, can we, are you, are you with me here? Can we imagine a hybrid between these three? Uh, These are people who, they live off the grid. They live in the wilderness. They're nomads. 250 years prior, there was a a, a leader named Jonadab, who was the son of Rechab. That's where they get the name Rechabites. And Jonadab started this movement. And he said for his followers, which were actually his family, for his family... There were five commitments. They would have no wine. They would have no house. They would have no seed. They would have no vineyard. And they would live in tents. These are the five commitments that for 250 years this family has been living by in obedience to their father, Jonadab. After this situation of disobedience goes down, Jeremiah says, I'm going to give everybody an object lesson with the Rechabites. So he calls this countercultural community of people into the temple. And he sets before them pitchers, not just cups or thimbles or communion glass sizes, pitchers of wine and cups. And then he says, he doesn't just say, hey, if you guys would like to, have some wine. He doesn't say, you know, unless it kind of offends your conscience, have some wine. He commands them. He says, drink wine. What do the Rechabites say? They say no. And their reasoning for not drinking wine is because Their father, Jonadab, who lived 250 years prior, said that they are not to drink wine or live in houses or have seed or have their own vineyard. 
but they're to live in tents, and that's what they do. In obedience to their father, a human who created some man-made traditions, who's been dead for 250 years, and they're still obeying him. Well, the point of this kind of strange object lesson is seen in verse 14 of chapter 35. He says, the command that Jonadab, the son of Rechab, gave to his sons to drink no wine has been kept, and they drink none to this day, for they have obeyed their father's command. I have spoken to you, God says, persistently, but you have not listened to me. What he's saying is this, is these people, this countercultural community, are 100% obedient to these man-made traditions. Which I would add aren't really even that helpful. Like there's nothing about this that says these are good and right things to pursue. These are just man-made traditions that some dude thought of, my family's going to do, and they've obeyed him for 250 years. But then he says, but you... You've got the law of God, your spiritual father, and he will never require anything of you that is stupid or foolish or harmful. And you can't obey him. You see, humans have a problem. And the problem that we have is our disobedience and it is rooted in the fact that we don't identify ourselves as gods. But we identify ourselves as ours. But the Gospel says that Jesus Christ paid the price to own us. He bought us with a great price. The price of His blood. He adopted us as sons and daughters. He gives us an identity as this newly created humanity who are saved by His grace through faith, not by works of righteousness. Yet we follow God's moral law so that we might display to the world who Jesus is. We are, this is our identity, we are sons of God. We are displaying this new humanity to the world. Like if you think of who you are, well, I'm a husband. Okay, but before you're a husband, you're a child of God displaying the new humanity in your marriage. Or you say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm an employee. Okay, before you're an employee, you're a child of God displaying the new humanity at your work. Or you say, well, I, I'm a neighbor. Before you're a neighbor, you're a child of God displaying the new humanity in your community. We are a people identified by Jesus Christ and thus we want to live for Him and follow Him in all that we do. Question though, how is it that we could have the audacity to say that we, who you and I know are disobedient, right? I'm not even going to ask you who perfectly has followed the law of God in here. We are lawbreakers. 
We break his law all the time. I mean, we're saying it's good, it's right, we should follow it, and we know that we break it. So how can we say that we are identified as the new humanity? How can we say that we are a people who are the light of the world, or displaying the light of the world? We're salt and light, displaying the light of Jesus Christ. How can we even have the audacity to say that when we know that we are disobedient to God? The reality is this. When I read this text, I don't really see myself as a Rechabite. I see myself as an Israelite. I don't see myself as one who has perfectly obeyed the Father. I see myself as one who obeys when it's convenient and struggles to obey God and fights to obey God. It so often disobeys. We are not the Rechabites. You know, a better picture of the Rechabites is Jesus Christ, who fully obeyed his Father. 100%. Never once did Jesus falter in his obedience to God. Never once did he send the text message to the wrong person. Well, he didn't have a phone. Doesn't matter. He didn't do it. <laughs> Case in point. Never once did he tell a lie. Never once did he lust. Never once did he get wrongly angry at somebody and lash out in a way that was sinful. He never disobeyed the Father. And the Bible says this. You are in Jesus Christ. The good news of Christ is that Jesus lived His life for us, on behalf of us, so that we might have His obedience. And as Jesus dies on the cross, what does He do as He's hanging on the cross? The curse of the covenant that is ours as God says, makes a covenant with humanity, you are to obey me, and, 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 and uh, if we don't, here is the curse. This is what it looks like. It looks like death. Jesus took the curse of the covenant on Himself that was mine. He's the one who, who took all of this on Himself. And as He hangs, bearing the weight of the curse for humanity, a great exchange takes place and we are given His obedience to the Father. It's just given to us. It's donated to us. The Bible says that we then are declared righteous. We're not actually righteous. We still stumble and fall. But we are declared as righteous because of Jesus Christ. We have a new identity because of Christ, and our identity is Jesus Christ. Sons of God, daughters of God, bought by the blood of Jesus, held by Christ. Let me just close this morning by asking you this question, what holds you? What holds you? 
Is it your own actions? Is it your own obedience before God? What holds you? When we fear that our faith is going to fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter seems like he's going to prevail, Christ will hold me fast. When I feel my soul is going to be lost, I know that His promises to me will last. And when my love for God grows cold, Christ will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. Christ will hold me fast. Listen, friends, we are identified as people who are forgiven of our sins, loved by the Father, given a perfect Savior, a new heart, regenerated, made new by the Holy Spirit of God. Saved by His grace. And as His people, we don't obey Him out of some kind of begrudged duty in order to get Him to do things for us, but we get to obey Him as His people. We get to walk in light of the law that has been given to humanity that will lead to our flourishing and to the flourishing of humanity. His law is good. His law is right because He has loved us so. Let us obey Him. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank You for this text as we recognize that we too, as Israel, are people who so quickly falter in our obedience to You. Falling into disobedience, God, we pray that we would have an obedience that is not just convenient, getting You to do things for us when we're in a bind. But we pray that we would be a people who, knowing that we are kept by, by, by You, that we are held by Christ, knowing that we are forgiven of our sins, sins that we have committed, sins that we will commit, out of that sense of grace and love that we would delightfully obey You, our Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.